This is a podcast from 3RRR, 102.7 FM in Melbourne. Truly independent community radio. Good morning, everybody, and welcome to another episode of Einstein and Go-Go. I'm Dr. Shane, and we have a massive show ahead today. We have an interview that we did just a hour or so ago with Captain Gene Soon and the last man to physically walk on the moon, believe it or not. But in the studio with me is Dr. Lauren, Dr. Ray, and Chris KP. Uh, Lib's doing our Twitter feed. We're going to play that interview for you now, and this is a precursor to him coming out to Australia, and he will be in Melbourne at the Astor Theatre on Tuesday, uh, May 31st, and you can book tickets to that through Ticketmaster. Um, this interview was conducted this morning by myself and the president of the Space Association Australia, um, Peter Elwood. And in fact, there's a meeting of the Space Association Australia uh, this week at the Caulfield RSL from 7 till 10 pm tomorrow night. Um, just have a look at space.asn.au to get all the details. It's free and it's, it's great to go along. Anyway, here is the interview and I uh, hope you enjoy it. It's a quite long, great discussion with an amazing man. I go on 3RRR. I'm Dr. Shane, and my guest today is Captain Gene Cernan, NASA astronaut on Gemini 9A, Apollo 10, and commander of Apollo 17. Captain Cernan was the human being who last stepped on the moon in 1972. Also in the studio with me is Peter Alwood, president of the Space Association Australia. Captain Cernan, thank you very much for making the time to speak to us today, and I should say a belated happy birthday for last week. Well, thank you. It's a pleasure... Uh pleasure being here and uh, those birthdays are coming all too quick lately i can imagine <laughs> now we're very excited about your upcoming tour of australia and the launch of the movie the last man on the moon which is directed by mark craig can you give us a bit of an idea what should audiences expect from this film well i don't want to give the movie away my intent hopefully uh well can i back up just a little bit i uh i really uh um, was really not supporting their their approach. It took them a long while to uh, Mark Craig and Mark Stewart to talk me into doing this. I couldn't uh, figure out why anyone would want to be interested in a meal in a movie about me. And finally, they convinced me that it was worth doing. They both read my book by the same name. The book is a little different, although it's it's it takes the personal. Uh, approach like the movie does not uh it's really not technological at all and uh, they both liked it and, and finally i was convinced that uh it really wasn't a movie it wasn't about me it was about uh, a young kid from any town usa maybe any town in the world who uh had a dream going way back to world war ii to fly to fly airplanes off aircraft carriers and and that that dream was actually uh contagious and and uh um and that it, it was about it, put it this way they convinced me it was a movie to inspire young people to dream to do things they didn't think they could do and once they got me on that path uh I thought, well, you know, maybe I owe something to this next generation. Hmm. Look, it, uh, I watched it on Friday night with my wife. It's a, it's a fabulous film, and it's not just young people who were uh, inspired to dream with this film either. I was I was quite inspired by it. G- give us an idea of how long it took to put together, because as you said, this is not a technical film. It is a deeply personal film, and I have to say, having watched it, I, I feel as though I, in a way, know you now. Well, you're awful kind with your words, and and that was the intent, uh, quite honestly, uh, because you know we weren't 
we weren't Superman who came out of the golden sky with a big silver cape. We're just normal people, uh, put our pants on one leg at a time. And, and I think people needed to understand who we were, what we were, what we believed in. Uh, we have families, we have kids. Uh, we grew up uh, from, um, you know, different means. And, uh, you know, my parents, uh, quite frankly, uh, were, were very blue collar, but I never was wanting for anything. Came from uh, immigrant grandparents and uh, grew up in a big city. And, uh, and my dream, which was, as I say, to fly airplanes, was stimulated by those unsung heroes and, uh, World War II, we didn't have television, and I know young people find it difficult to understand that, but uh, we got the news in the you know, black and white film at the movie theater about once a week, and uh, those unsung heroes of World War II, the Battle of Midway, those guys, they, they inspired me to do what I knew I never would be able to do because that dream was completely out of reach for me at that point in time. But you know what? It happened, and here I am. And why can't it be uh, every young kid uh, in the world if they really want to do something badly enough? Mm. It's good, good advice. Now, give us an idea, Captain, why you decided to, to do this now. Because, as you said, it's been quite some years since you put the book out, um, but you brought the film out now. What what took so long for the, this to sort of come about? Well, Mark Craig, uh, the director, came to me about, Oh, it's his idea. Uh, it took a long time for me to get the book out, too. It took about 25 years until someone convinced me that uh, the things they've been hearing me say ought to be uh, ought to be read or heard by other people. And, and then Mark came to me about, uh, golly, it's been probably seven, eight years ago with the idea. And, and I, uh, you know, I've been stowed a lot of swamps in the desert in my lifetime, and I figured... I don't, I don't need another one, but he stayed with it. He stayed with it. He got Mark Stewart. Mark read the book. Mark was passionate about what he read, and he said, we not only can do this, we have to do it. And so maybe maybe about three or four years ago, I, uh, I agreed, okay, let's give it a try. And what's interesting, I had never done this before. I didn't really have any idea how they were going to put this together. Nothing, absolutely nothing was scripted. They uh, they took me almost every place conceivable on my background in the country and uh, put a microphone on me and, and said, think out loud. And if you, if you saw the movie, I guess Arlington is a pretty good place, uh, a pretty good example of that. Uh, you know, you, you start letting your mind wander and go back and here I was looking at uh, the headstones of uh, Roger Chaffee, my neighbor. Um, my daughter played with his kids, dear friends of ours. We went hunting together. There's Gus Grissom. I saw Charlie Bassett's grave, and I kept thinking, why me? Why, why are they there and I'm here? Uh, it, it, it just... I couldn't, I don't have an answer to that question. I can probably go back to the days I actually got selected for the program and ask the same question. Uh, why me? I didn't even apply for the program. I didn't meet all NASA's qualifications, and yet somehow I ended up getting selected and, and took that, that weavy path 
down down the road and fate f-a-t-e had a tremendous amount to do with how and where i got where i did and you know and it took that was maybe the last two three four years and uh we talked a little bit about it we started filming and i think the first realization of what the film was going to be like when uh, they had about four hours in the can and they said you want to see what we got and i said well yeah i do and it blew me away quite frankly and i still at that point in time had a tough time wondering how and why people were going to like it but i tell you to my uh it's amazing people all over the country all over the world we've been in in the uk we've been in a few other canada uh and people seem to love it and if they do then i'm you know then i'm for it maybe i've got a legacy to leave before it's all over Captain Turner, it's uh, Peter here. Uh, I, I too saw the movie in preview and I was absolutely blown away by the photography and the images that were in there. Um, just want to ask you a quick question. The, the, the film is, is a very personal story from your perspective. Uh, what, in your opinion, is the most important and meaningful thing to come out of human spaceflight as opposed to unmanned spaceflight, and more specifically uh, from the Apollo program, in your opinion? Well, you know, we can talk about... Uh all the technological spin-offs they're certainly important but the uh, technology technology of Apollo and we couldn't have done it uh, you know at that point in time without people literally creating the technology that that we needed when the president said uh, we're going to go to the moon back in 1961 I don't think many people including yours truly believed it could be done uh, we didn't know beans about getting to the moon we had a to do and we certainly made our measure of mistakes along the way and it cost us without question it cost us but when you look back the technology of Apollo is uh, I think is already obsolete uh, overshadowed by time these young kids have got more more technology more more memory in their in their iPhones than I had in both of my hands when I landed on the moon and the questions people get, people ask all the time, are 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 really, uh, how did it feel? What did it look like? Were you scared? Did you feel you wouldn't come home? Uh, what do you do when you don't, you know, when you're not out on the road? What's your family like? And and on and on. But they were all questions. I like to compare if uh, you know if you had uh, Neil Armstrong and. Uh, and uh, Christopher Columbus in the same room at the same time right now. I really believe you'd ask them both the same questions. How did you feel? Did you think you wouldn't get back? Did you think you'd fail sail off the flat earth? How did you feel when you first stepped on the moon and saw land? Those are the things people want to know. And, uh, and, and when you look back, what do I think the most important thing is? Yes, we're getting right back to where we started. It's the inspiration of people, and you said it earlier, not just young people, but young and old, to do what they didn't believe was possible. Uh, we had uh, the whole world believing we could do it uh, after we got after it for uh, for a few years. 
people got on board, and 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 I guess I was one of those guys. Once I got selected for the program, and and you get involved, and and you believe it, you you don't believe you can't do it. You know, it's it's that kind of thing. And the next thing you know, you're, you're standing on a moon, and you've done it. Mm-hmm. And it still seems unreal. It still seems magical. It it still seems to some degree like it's a dream. Um, you know, some kind of science fiction dream, and you find yourself in this unbelievable place, and you pinch yourself, am I really here at this moment in space and time and history? And in fact, the life is, it's real. You've done it. And 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 if, if I could do it, if I could do it, there's no reason every young boy, every young girl, every young man, every young woman in, a, in the world can't do something like this. And as a matter of fact, we owe it to future generations to explore. Mm. Uh, we, we, we literally owe it to open the doors to the future. Uh, because, you know, otherwise you wither and die. If you don't grow as, mm. a, as, a, as humanity, uh, where do you go? What happens? Mm. Captain Sandin, uh, it's, it's interesting. You, you speak so much in many of your interviews about inspiring the young and so forth. So one of the things I did midweek was I uh, contacted a very dedicated uh, elementary school, primary, uh, primary school teacher that, we, um, that I know of here in Melbourne, and I asked her to challenge her class of uh, grade three students, so these are seven- and eight-year-olds, um, to come up with a couple of questions for you because I thought it would oh, be great, good, great. good for you to hear from them. Um, so this is the, the group from Tellers Lakes Primary School in Miss Emma Herbert's class, 3EH, and they they actually, I asked them for two or three questions and they gave me a list of 25, so I've picked out a, a couple for you. <laughs> See what I mean? Yeah, they, they love it. Well, the, excitement, the excitement and the interest in young kids, it, and it's really not hard to to uh, create that 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 passion, that inspiration in their hearts or minds. They're ready. This future generation is much a part uh, of of what we did as we were at the time, and they could do it again. Indeed, and and they they actually uh, they got a little bit of an Apollo lesson before coming up with these questions, which I think is great. And um, the first question that I've selected was, when you were in space, was it extremely dark? Dark? Yeah. Oh, no. As a matter of fact, yes and no. You know, there's a lot of paradoxes uh, when you go to the moon. We were in daylight the whole time. Uh, You used the word dark. I used the word blackness. Uh, Darkness is when you're in a shadow uh, in our case, here on Earth or on the moon of the sun. That's, that's darkness when you're in the shadow. And we were in sunlight. We launched at darkness from the Earth on Apollo mm-hmm. 17, and that was because of where we were landing. But soon we came into sunlight. And once we left the Earth, we were in sunlight all the way to the moon until we came into the shadow of the moon. We got, we got the moon between the sun and us and we were then in darkness but when you look back at the earth and you look through that sunshine and this is a paradox and you look through that sunshine and there's nothing for the sun to to shine on except maybe the earth itself the multicolored blues of the oceans and whites of the snow and a cloud and everywhere else along you could look just a skosh alongside the earth 
and you are peering into the deepest blackness that you can conceive in your mind. I didn't say darkness. You're looking through sunlight and you're peering at a three-dimensional blackness. I call it the endlessness of space and the endlessness of time. There's nothing there. There's nothing for the sun to shine on. So it is totally black. Mm. Uh, the the other question they had for you was um, how big were the craters on the moon? I, I think a, a lot of people have the, the wrong impression of just the size of things on the moon. Uh, that's we know, what size would you like? We uh, you know there's craters the size of football fields. There's craters probably the size I won't say quite maybe the size of continents, but uh, but maybe pretty close. Uh, we landed in a valley. Uh, that had mountains on three sides higher than a Grand Canyon is deep to give you some idea. Now the other side of that coin is when you're in the lunar rover uh, and you're in one six gravity and you're driving and you hit a crater, maybe a crater the size of three or four feet wide, it, you're up in the air again. Uh, so you've got small craters, little potholes, little potholes and big gigantic what you'd recall, maybe have to call valleys because they're almost not recognizable as craters because they're so big. Mm. Now, a uh, question with regards to the sort of time that's passed and so forth, uh, Captain Sen, it's been almost 45 years since you walked on the moon, and at the time it seemed as though Kennedy, as you said, said it's an impossible goal. Do we have a similar sort of goal today, or have we lost something? Well, I don't think we've lost the enthusiasm, and I don't think we've lost the will and desire of most people, um, particularly young people. And the program here in the, in, in the States has always been, it's been a bipartisan program since the days of, of Sputnik and Gagarin and certainly uh, from the first flight of Al Shepard. And it, 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 it is today. It, it, I, we have t- Neil Armstrong, Jim Lovell, and I, had testified three different times in front of Congress, and I can promise you, those ladies and gentlemen are just as excited as most other people's over what we've done, even though they may have been not born in some cases or, or young school children at the time. So it's a very bipartisan attitude. The problem is, just like everything else, we need leadership. We need a Kennedy. We need someone who's bold. We need someone who can challenge the nation. Oh, I know it costs money, and if you don't have the money, you can't do it. Well, it's not so much money you have. It's how you spend it. I'm not sure, and I don't. I, I can't even think back that far right now. What our what our um, our budgets were back in '61? Uh, what Kennedy said we're going to go to the moon. But he found this world in the '60s. This country, let me put it that way. He found this country in sad shape. We were we were um, at campus unrest, civil stripes, burning West Los Angeles down. Uh, we were at the beginning of a very what became a very very unpopular war. The Russians owned space. They put Sputnik, Gagarin, and I could put the grand piano in space if they wanted to, and and we were left with little or nothing because our 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 vehicles, our satellites, our spaceships were were. were Falling into the ocean out of off Kennedy, off of uh, Cape Kennedy, it was a sad state of. I call it the terrible sixties. Most people uh, today in the forties and fifties 
don't really remember that because they were too young or life was moving too fast as a teenager. They didn't pay much attention to it. But Kennedy, whether he was a visionary, uh, um, a bold visionary, a dreamer politically astute, he indeed was bold and he saw this country needed something. And here's two things to think about. By the end of that decade, 1968, we not only did the impossible, we orbited three human beings around the moon in 1968 on Christmas Eve. That was the answer to his bold challenge, the beginning of the answer to his bold challenge. And, you know, without that kind of leadership, without someone who's willing to be accountable, without someone who's willing to be responsible, for what's important to them, we're never going to do it again. Now, having said that, will we do it again? Yes, we will go back to the moon. We will go to Mars. We had a program to do that uh, seven, eight years ago, which was canceled by the president administration. And it's it's a sad state of affairs because literally we could be on our way right now. Yeah, Gene, um, uh, back to Peter. Um I just want to go back to your film, if I may. Um, in the film, we, we learned something about you that uh, I believe that uh, you did something not no other astronaut had ever done in declining a seat to, to be on Apollo 16 to walk on the moon. Could you tell us about that? That's the biggest risk I ever took uh, uh, in a space program, maybe. Maybe in my life, as far as, you know, turning down an opportunity like that. Yeah, I, uh, I had flown Gemini 9. I, uh, uh, flew uh, Apollo 10. I was back up on an earlier Apollo flight. I backed up Alan Shepard in the, in the command seat on, uh, on, uh, uh, Apollo 14. Why I had the courage to do that. I'll never know, but you're right. I had an opportunity to fly on the moon, uh, actually a flight before Apollo 17, but it would have been from the right seat. Why was that important? And my boss couldn't believe it. Deke Slayton said, you're turning down, and he never really guaranteed anything, but he almost did this time. You're turning down a chance to walk on the moon for a flight uh, in the left seat, uh, for a, a, a seat as a commander of a spacecraft for a flight that may never come about. Or if it does, you may not be selected to sit in that seat. And I told him yes, and i and I tell you why. I, it's, it, it's not that I felt that I was better than anybody else. It's not that I felt that uh, I earned it more than anybody else. But I had to prove, given a chance, I had to prove to myself um, that I was good enough to do it, I, that I was good enough to command a flight and be successful that landed on the moon. Uh, you know, I, I'd been an underdog. I, as I said earlier, I didn't apply for the program, um, only because I didn't meet all their qualifications, flight time, and test pilot school. And I had to prove something to myself. Given a chance, I had to prove something. Not to you, but, but, but to myself. And when I stepped on the moon. Uh, the first steps had already been taken, but those were my steps, and nobody could take them away from me at that point in time, or even today. And uh, it was then that I proved to myself, I can do it, and I did it. And don't ask me, I mean, it, it was a risky, it was a risky decision on my part, uh, because, you know, I've always said fate has a big 
big hand in uh, where you end up in this world. And uh, it sure did on this occasion. I, I thought I'd almost rip my knickers uh, and never would fly again. It's a fascinating, fascinating insight into, into you as a person, uh, Captain Sooner. So how long between you declining that, that seat on Apollo 16 and being uh, uh, appointed for the commander role of Apollo 17 was, the, was it? That must have been a very stressful, lie-awake-at-night type of period for you. Well, you know, even when I... I got the assignment as uh, backup commander on Apollo 14. I had absolutely no assurance, assurances of any kind that I'd, I'd find Apollo flight again, much less being a left seat on Apollo 17. I, I, I go back, I go back to the Wyoming, and I said this in my book, and I don't take it back. I said, if I were my boss, and I was competing against Dick Gordon, a highly qualified, good friend of mine, highly qualified guy, commander of Apollo, could have been commander of Apollo 17. Plus, it was decreed that we would, we would, we had one lunar geologist in a program, and he was on the, uh, on, on Dick Gordon's backup crew for 15. And he was going to fly. Right. There was no doubt he was going to fly. Uh, we knew it. And why, why would you break up a crew? Like, like Dick did, and fly me and Ron Evans and put Jack on our crew. I don't know why me. I don't know, but I, you know, I, I, uh, I don't know. I just thank God that he made that decision. I won't, don't know, <laughs> stirred him on to do it. But uh, you go out and do. My dad said, my dad always used to say, just go out and do your best, and someday you're going to surprise yourself. He was right. That's fantastic. Good advice. Uh, Captain, uh, there's a lot of activity at the moment with regards to the International Space Station, but I wanted to ask you a question that anyone who's been on board that station won't be able to answer, and that is what is the real difference between the experience you get in sort of low Earth orbit and actually being in, in what we would refer to as, you know, deep space, outer space? Two words exploitation of space. In other words, we're going to take what we learn and we're going to exploit space to our advantage versus uh, um, uh, exploitation versus, versus uh, ex- expanding our knowledge, exploration of space. And, and going, back, going back to the moon or going on to Mars or whatever, and what we did on Apollo 10 and 17 was the exploration of space. There's a tremendous difference. What we're doing on a space station, we hope does benefit us someday, and I believe it will. But we're exploiting. We're exploiting the benefits of near-Earth orbit, the zero gravity, the vacuum, and near-vacuum of space. And there's a tremendous difference going where man has never gone before, seeing what has never been seen with human eyes before. That's exploration of space. Mm. Now, what, one other question I have for you here is with regards to, I guess, similar, related to a question you must always get, which is what was it like to be on the moon? But what I want to know is what was it like when, when you actually came back? I mean, how were you changed? <clears throat> well, I'd like to believe I haven't. Undoubtedly, I have in some way, one or another. When, when I went out to the moon on Apollo 10, and you watch the Earth recede to something as, you know, you can literally cover with the palm of your hand. And like Apollo 13, uh, like, you cover the Earth with your thumb. Uh, that's your, that's your real world. That's reality. That's where the past, the 
be there with order and and you're looking at the other side of the world it just was too beautiful to have happened by accident and to me on after i came back from apollo 10 i uh and and I'm not talking religion. I'm talking about a spiritual difference between Earth orbit flight and going somewhere. Uh, and and you come back and you never forget what you saw. Went back on Apollo 17. Went one step further. Went out of Earth orbit down to uh, the surface of the moon. And I I think I said in the uh, in the movie. And I I've used the phrase quite often because it's the only way I can really explain it hopefully if you use your imagination you can find yourself there i i literally sat on god's front porch looking back at the small piece of the universe which he created so i I came back without question believing that this earth this world this universe has a creator a creator that is behind its making now has that changed my life um does that quote mean i have to go to church every day or every sunday or whatever i don't think so i don't think so but that image that feeling that thought that knowledge uh i could never i could never undo uh, Gene, we're just about out of time here. Thank you so much for your time. Um, just one question. You're on your way to Australia shortly. Um, we're looking forward to seeing you and, of course, your movie. One thing that you probably are aware of uh, uh, is that Australia, uh, back in the 60s and continuing to this day, has a, a, a fairly small but very critical role in the Deep Space Network. Were you, as part of your duties uh, in your missions, aware of the Australian involvement at Honeysuckle Creek, at Tidman Billa, at, at Carnarvon and uh, New Norcia uh, oh, in Australia? Yeah. And is there anything you'd like to say Absolutely. to the people that work there? Because there'll be a number of those people at your movies, I'm sure. Uh, let me tell you, we couldn't have done what we did without Australia. Uh, God, God put that, that creator put Australia in the right place. Uh, and, uh, you know, it was, it, it, you know, I love Australia. I'm really anxious to get back to the people back there. It's so wonderful. There is much, you are all as much a part of the space program as we were. I've always said we weren't in that spacecraft alone. And, and I believe it because I think anyone who had anything to do with it, anyone who put a bolt in the heat shield, anyone who, 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 who worked with us from the surface from Perth or anywhere, uh, was on that board, that spacecraft, uh, with us. I can remember one time on my, on Gemini 9, I had a lot of trouble with my, uh, well, we, we, I just, my workload, my heart rate, I overpowered the, the, uh, um, cooling system in the, in the spacecraft. My visor became fogged. I was outside a spacecraft day and night, a couple revolutions around the earth. And one time I, I knew, I knew I had to be over Australia. And I took my nose and I rubbed a little, a, a little hole in the fog so I could see through the, uh, through the, uh, helmet through the visor and sure enough there were the lights of australia (laughs) and that gave me a level of comfort that you cannot i I don't know if you can relate to it or not but it was significant to me yeah yeah i can captain sen as i mentioned uh, i i did watch the movie on friday with my wife and uh, of course she's the most important critic i i can i can trust 
And at the end of the movie, I just wanted to relay to her, to you her comment. Um, she just came out with a very short sentence and she just said, what a gorgeous man. So that's the effect I think the film will hopefully have on many people. Oh, you're, you're, you're kind. I'd sure like to meet her. <laughs> I'm not sure I should allow that. <laughs> uh, we, well, we you're hope... too kind. I do, I do appreciate your words. I, I, I can't, I'm overwhelmed. Yeah, look, we... Of a reception the movie scene, but when you say those kind of words, it just blows me away. I, I just had no idea. Well, we, we're absolutely blown away by the career that you've had, and I have to say it has been an absolute privilege and an honour for Peter and I to speak to you today, and we very, very much are looking forward to your visit in May this year to Australia. Well, I'm, I'm very much looking forward to seeing you folks, and, uh, and uh, we'll... Uh, We'll do what we have to do. We can talk about it. We can do whatever we need to do about it. But uh, warm up the weather just a little bit for us. We'll do our best, although that could be a, a little tricky. We're moving into winter. Thanks so much, and we will see you in a short time. Okay, very good. Safe Thank travels. You, Thank you, Captain. Bye Thank you. Bye-bye. Bye. There you go, folks. Uh, interview with Gene Cernan, Apollo astronaut. Now, if you're interested in that film, it's playing at the Astor on the 31st of May and uh, on other dates in Sydney, Canberra and Perth, if you're interested. This is the only time it will actually be on the big screen in Australia. It will have a different release. It won't have a theatrical release. So if you want to go along, have a look uh, at Ticketmaster, the group Live on Stage Australia bringing this out, and uh, you can book tickets. He is an amazing man, and it was an absolute privilege to speak to him. 102.7. In the studio, we have Dr. Jason Dutton. He's a senior lecturer in chemistry at La Trobe University in the Institute for Molecular Science. Jason, welcome to the studio. Howdy. Thanks for having me on. Now, uh, you work in the area of uh, sort of chemicals and how they react in different environments. Uh, you work in both computational and synthetic chemistry. What's the difference between these two? I thought you guys were always kept in separate rooms so you didn't interact. <laughs> Uh, it's when I first got to Australia. It's uh, taking or setting up lab takes a lot of time, and uh, but you can do chemistry on a computer, and you can do that right away. And uh, nowadays, you can just sort of uh, draw a molecule on the computer and pretty much hit go, and it'll uh, move all the bonds and electrons around and pretty much give you the, a similar answer as to what you get uh, synthetically in the lab. Right. So it's a really excellent uh, predictive tool as to what's going to work or what might not work. Hmm. Now, I want to focus in on the area that uh, I guess you guys are probably most interested in, and that's around the use of hydrogen as a fuel. We've been hearing about this for a long time, but we're not driving around in hydrogen fuel cars. Why is that? What's the what's the problem? Uh, so the issue with hydrogen is it's expensive to make. Okay. And uh, the cheapest way to make it, you make it from fossil fuels. And by the time you've done all the stuff, you might as well just burn the methane in the first place. Okay. Uh, so what uh, myself and lots and lots of other people around the world are working on is trying to make hydrogen from water uh, in an efficient matter manner because that's also very easy to do but you need electricity and there's waste in waste out and you might as well just burn the coal anyway again so, so ultimately it needs to get made from sunlight hmm. so so at the moment if you if you were to sort of weigh up the the amount of energy used to make the hydrogen from water versus the amount you get back does, does it add up or are we using more to get it uh, we're using far more to get it than okay. we get back out of it uh, currently hmm. now What's the what's the process? How do you go through doing that? It's splitting the, the H and the two O's. How do you pull them apart so that you get? Well, I guess you've got to use more than one molecule to get the hydrogen uh, H two itself. Uh, so what we do in my lab is we use metals to do that. Uh, gold specifically uh, for me, and uh, we're reverse engineering the process. 
So any chemical reaction can go backwards or forwards. Uh, same mm-hmm. reaction, same uh, hills to get over. And so what we're doing with gold is we're putting the H and the OH on separately and then seeing what it does uh, from there. Because if we can go backwards, you can, in principle, do the forward reaction. Hmm. So is this sort of the opposite of oxidization in a sense? Is that what we're talking about? I mean, when, when you say go backwards, what's the what's the forwards version? Uh, so what's the forward the reaction would be taking water and yep. splitting it on the gold. Okay. Uh, the backward reaction is we take water that's already been split, so we put on the, the hydrogen and the uh, the other O and H separately. Mm-hmm. And then if we can get those two things to go back together to make water, in principle, the reverse reaction uh, should also be achievable. That sounds simple. <laughs> it does sound simple, but, what, but in so, practice, it's yeah, why, uh, very why, challenging. Yeah. So, what what are the challenges? Why why doesn't it work the way way it sounds? Uh, so, one of the major challenges is, is you've got to couple that with something that's going to absorb light, uh, because ultimately the energy to do the forward reaction has to come from light, hmm. and getting uh, that part of the molecule talking to the part that's got the uh, the water bits on there is uh, very very challenging uh, to get the energy to go across to talk to the uh, other parts. Hmm. Um, so you you say light, but if you're using gold, unless it's a really small nanoparticle for gold, you don't really get much interaction. What's the methods you're thinking about for light to drive this type of reaction? Uh, so I'm an organic metallic chemist, so we have gold at the center of a molecule, and the other parts of the molecule will be big uh-huh. organic things that will absorb the sunlight. Mm-hmm. And then uh, the trick, which you know, I haven't succeeded in yet, is getting that energy to transfer uh, from one part of the molecule across the gold uh, to the part with the water. So, Jason, with these sorts of reactions, I'm assuming that they're hard enough as it is in the lab, but what about if you were actually to do them out in the real world? So if we're trying to eventually have a car, then you can have these reactions. So does the environment and the temperature and all of those sorts of things affect it? So that's one of the uh, the huge challenges. Uh, I'm a what you call a fundamental chemist. Uh, so what we do is work in the lab, and ultimately it takes 20 or 30 years for discoveries to get uh, sort of transferred into the applied space uh, where they're cheap enough to be uh, commercially viable. Mm-hmm. And there's a big push these days that everything needs a commercial application mm-hmm. today. We want a product tomorrow if we give you the money to do the science. Mm-hmm. Uh, but the issue there is if we only do that in 20 or 30 years, we're going to run out of fundamental science. Mm-hmm. Uh, so it's important to have uh, people like me sort of working at the bottom of the pyramid uh, where the real clever guys who uh, put it into practice uh, can absorb what we do. Mm, absolutely. So uh, if you're uh, if you're working on, um, on 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 ways of, of sort of getting that energy out of the surrounding uh, molecules or surrounding um, you know, organic matter and into the the gold, what is it in your modelling? What is it in the computational side of it that makes you think that's even going to ever be practical? Uh, well, we have to try. First of all, we don't know we we don't know if it's uh, going to work or not. But some uh, people who uh, like I'm building on their chemistry is uh, that transferring of energy from organic bits to gold that was uh, uh, you know well sorted out you know ten twenty years ago and ongoing work. So we know we can uh, transfer the energy, and then we've got the parts with the water on the other side. But it's finding the right match, right. which is uh, often. Uh, sort of a guessing game. You don't know which one's going to work, so we need to try a lot of things. It's very interesting stuff, Jason, and uh, certainly it's an area where I suppose a lot of people around the world are working on. Hopefully we will uh, crack it here in Melbourne. Um, Thanks so much for talking to us today on Einstein & Gogo, and good luck with the work. Thank you. Dr. Jason Dutton is a senior lecturer in chemistry at the La Trobe Institute for Molecular Science at La Trobe University. Triple. (sighs) 
we love Triple R. You're listening to Einstein and Gogo. It's time for some science news. Dr. Lauren, we're going to start with you because I know you're very pregnant and a good. <laughs> we don't get it out soon. We could have problems. Well, I'm, I'm literally just sitting here still shaking from that interview, to be honest. I'm you're like, shaking. Yeah. I'm like, we just spoke to I'm an shaking astronaut. and I, you know, did it a couple of hours ago. Yeah. <laughs> but anyway. It's, it's very exciting. It's very exciting. But there is other science happening in the world. Um, I've been reading up about uh, a very interesting work coming from the J. Craig Venter Institute in the oh, US. J. Craig. J. Love Craig. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Big fan. That, they're, they're actually doing some amazing work there. Is that like Jenny Craig? <laughs> <laughs> They'd probably have more funding if it was Jenny Craig. <laughs> oh, there you go. Yeah. Probably not them. Um, but no, they, this um, group have actually been working on developing synthetic cells. And what they've actually published in the last week is a um, minim- basically a bacterial genome, which has got the minimum number of genes that you need to survive life, to sustain life. Oh, an absolute minimum. Yeah. Oh, and wow, so, okay. so do you want any, any guesses on how many genes a bacteria might need to live? I'm going to go with 10. Nine. Seven. Well, 473. Oh. So, yeah, we, you were closest. We really close. don't know much, but, but I won. Dr. Shane was closest. Yeah, yeah. You're yeah. pretty close. Um, but it's, it's very interesting, actually, because there's obviously a lot more genes than that in, in living organisms normally. Mm. So what they actually did is develop these synthetic cells, and they pretty much did this... Um, process where they were just seeing, you know, how many of these cells could live. So yeah. it was like cutting out genes and seeing what would actually happen to that bacterium. And they used um, mycoplasma, which is a bacteria which already has the smallest number of genes in its natural state. But interestingly, they found that some of these genes actually had double ups. So even though there were the genes that we thought were essential, there actually was another one that did the same task. Yeah, right. So they have actually been able to rule those out. So, you know, it, it does sort of op- open that question of, you know, for us, for the human What's genome. What's the minimum number? Yeah, exactly, because yeah. we obviously have a lot more than that. Mm. Uh, there are... And a lot more than we need. Yeah, exactly, yeah. exactly. So I was actually really interested to find out that only um, so 20,000 of our genes, so out of the millions, uh, 20,000 of them are the ones that actually code for, for proteins. And so these are the mm. sort of, you know, partly essential ones, I guess. Mm. But, but for us, the 20,000 is based on the assumption that we understand how everything works to that level. There yeah. could there could always be an extra 20,000 that has some ancillary thing we don't, action we don't know and about. And this is the beautiful thing with this study is they actually, at the end of it, said, okay, well, we've come down to 473, 473 genes that have to exist for this bacterium to live, but they don't actually know what 30% of them do. Mm, so, yeah. you know, have such a small number. And they could be doing stuff together. It may not be as simple as one code exactly. for one thing. Yeah. Exactly. So one, one of the questions I've always had, which I probably should ask, uh, you know, bio... So the person, but, um, Not me. is, yeah, but yeah uh, <laughs> I wasn't looking at you. Is, you know, if, if, as, as an organism evolves mm. and you get more genes and so forth, mm. how easy is it to dump one? Mm. Like, how is mm. it, how, you know, how do you oh, unload one? Genetic you know, garage sale. Yeah. <laughs> Not using this anymore. Anybody? You know, maybe, maybe that's the thing. Maybe, maybe there are some that aren't, aren't used anymore. Yeah. But, but mm. there is no process that easily says, they're not used anymore yeah. because up to a point they were. Yeah, yeah. But evolutionally speaking, they would need to be disadvantageous yeah. to mm. need to be done. To get rid of. Yeah, yeah, yeah. but that, that's like, you know, if you have a partner or a spouse who never gets rid of anything except when you move. If you never move and you're always, you know, yeah. they just build yes. up. <laughs> we're Do talking you about, want to tell us something? We no, 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 not at all. <laughs> a little bit of counselling now. <laughs> uh, here's the man who tried to sell all his old fish tank stuff to me. <laughs> I may have bought some of it. Yeah, thank you. <laughs> yeah. My wife says I'm a hoarder. But I, I prefer the term collector. 
<laughs> Very good, Dr. Um, Lauren. Thanks for that. Dr. Ray, what do you go first? Uh, Dr. Shane, I have a, a, a discovery that actually was from Australian researchers that made a splash globally. Uh, researchers from RMIT came up with a way, they believe, to move towards the idea of nanotechnology for self-cleaning clothes. Oh, yeah. And and so this is because uh, <laughs> Chris KP has got an odd look on his face. Yeah, he's like, <laughs> I'm thinking, uh, they keep going, but I'm just thinking self ironing. But please, I'm jumping well, ahead. No, I'm actually, I'm actually reading what Chris is saying. It's like you have to clean clothes. <laughs> <laughs> Only uh, the ones on the outside people can see, right, Chris? Oh, go. dear. Front, back, inside out. Anyway, um, uh, so these researchers have actually figured out ways to get uh, silver or copper nanostructures onto cotton textiles. Oh, okay, yes. So actually, which comes back to Chris's point about ironing would probably destroy the nanostructures. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Make them wires. But uh, the idea is that these nanostructures can interact with light and create what um, the researchers were referring to as hot electrons to break down organic matter. (laughs) Yeah, I think they probably mean free radicals. But uh, but what they actually found was they haven't tried it with sweat yet, but they have started with some of the compounds found in stain and grimes where by shining light on these textiles, they actually create local reactions that then break down these chemicals. The idea is perhaps that leads to self-cleaning. Now, they said they're still at the starting stages, and, and they say, well, being able to, on a textile at demand, generate chemistry has actually a lot of potential for other applications as well. I mean, they, in the media press, they went with the clothes one. It, the, the, I looked in the media press stuff, and I, I couldn't find anything where they pointed out, does anyone want to be wearing clothes <laughs> while it's creating hot electrons? In the sun. In the sun. Yeah. So uh, I, I don't I don't know quite how that works, but they did point out. I mean, the the real technology there is being able to get these, and they have a couple different ways to do it: copper and 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 silver nanostructures onto cotton. And and so you know, think about it: cotton is a, this on a microscopic level the soft fibrous thing that they can actually get metal with mm. very specific mm. structures that interact with light all on it. That's that's a pretty neat technological yeah. advance. Yeah. Yeah. And, that's cool. And, and they're right. that In catalysis and driving other reactions, it probably has potential there, too. Yeah. Yeah. I have this different image. We, we always remember the, the kids running out of the surf with their speedos on going, hot, 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 on, the, on, the, on the hot oh, yes. Yeah. sand. Yes. Yeah. But in fact, in this scenario, <laughs> yeah. they'd be yelling, hot, hot, hot. Think about ways to convert that to photochemistry, uh, uh, redox reactions, other ways to do things with yeah. that would be pretty, yeah. just mm. pretty impressive. Yeah, just don't stand too close to someone wearing that stuff. <laughs> yeah, uh, you, you yeah. do wonder. Uh, yeah, you wonder where it goes. Chris KP? Uh, I recently saw video footage of uh, catfish. Several of them, many of them, in fact, effect- apparently walking um, down gutters. Oh, yeah. And stuff. yeah, it's very yeah. freaky. Yeah. Uh, and they can do it because they, their little front fins are quite strong. They're, they're quite muscular. Um, and I was impressed, I have to say, because, you know, fish are weird. And when they do things <laughs> that uh, I don't expect, I'm impressed by it. However, I'm no longer impressed by catfish walking um, because I have a far more impressive fish, um, Cryptoptera fish, which uh, this particular species is found uh, in northern Thailand. For a start, they live in caves and they have no eyes. Yeah, mm. uh, but that's not a problem. In fact, it might be a good thing. They when something ugly is nearby, they don't know. It's great. <laughs> um, it's, they're not offended by things visually at all. But they are actually able to walk up 
in wet inclines against the flow of the water. So water's flowing straight towards them, which they can sense, but they can walk up this thing uh, against the flow of water, um, you know, at will. But not just because they're working on their fins. They've actually got two pairs of fins, and they walk using uh, essentially a, a diagonal couplet gait, which is much closer to the way a four-legged animal would walk. Mm. For oh. example, a salamander. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so they're, they're essentially demonstrating a, a, a mode of walking that is much more like a four-legged amphibian, reptile, mammal, whatever mm-hmm. else, but they're blind fish. Wow. Uh, mm-hmm. Yeah, it's totally mm-hmm. totally weird and awesome. And when they're walking, I'm yeah. assuming some of them is out of the water. If I'm just imagining a... It's, it's kind of like it's kind of like when you're, you know, when you body surf mm. and you go to do that last couple of strokes and you slam your hand into the sand because you're actually in shallow water. Ah, yeah, it's like that. So that's... like your ass is in the air, their ass is in the air. <laughs> uh, so they're, they're sort of in and out a bit. Yeah, um, yeah. It's shallow, yeah. but it's yeah, but it's not it's not like they're they're not stepping out and drying off. No, yeah, no, well, but... they're not quite Hollywood, you know, no, scary movie no, yet. <laughs> no, not, not yet. Yeah. Not yet. No. But, they're but, developing. But like the catfish too, their gills are probably out of order for part of the time. They are interestingly about catfishes. They're actually they're able to actually hold a lot of oxygen um, from the water they've been okay. in as well. Mm. So there's kind of a they buy a bit of time there. So not quite like holding their breath. But um, I don't know about these guys how good they are at breathing. Mm. But I mean, mm. let's face it, you know, they can boogie. That's very cool. Interesting stuff. Mm. Yeah, I saw that, I saw that video and it was it's it was cool, pretty wild. Stuff. The little dogs walking. Um, now, I I, uh, I saw something. Uh, this is from the Journal of Neuroscience uh, just about a week ago. Um, we all know that uh, there's this, these these parts of our brain called the amygdala where um, all sorts of you know old things happen, and, and one of them is fear. Mm-hmm. You know, this is where we generate the, the the idea of fear, or at least this is what's been understood for a long time. Mm. Uh, put that aside for a moment. There's a pair of twin sisters who have this rare disease. Apparently, they've been studied um, by a guy named Steve. Stephen Heyman from Emory University in Atlanta. And one of the things that this uh, uh, particular disease has done is it has damaged the part of their brain that normally allows a person to feel fear. Mm. Oh, wow. Which is, you know, could be helpful. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Anxiety, fear, all this. Yeah. Um, However, you know, there's obviously other issues uh, associated with that. Um, But when they did some tests on these particular um, twin sisters, what they found was there were other ways to induce fear in them in the brain that they hadn't seen before so and there were a few ways of doing this one when you read this it's actually quite disturbing one was apparently if you give them a, a carbon dioxide rich um environment to breathe in other words you suffocate i was, gonna say, <laughs> I was, I was reading this thinking okay yeah we're good so far like when um, they said induce fear i thought all right they're making them watch yeah. the blair witch project it's hard to do that while they're in a functional mri um <laughs> you know, and, and, but there's other ways there's certain injections they can give to um mimic um, the sensations of fear, make them feel shaky and so forth. And what they found was other parts of the brain were lighting up. So, and more so in one patient than the others. But it, look, it's, it's sort of early days, this research, but it has sort of opened a window to the fact that these two girls seem to be feeling and, and experiencing fear in the way everyone else does, but the part of the brain in us that mm. allows us to feel fear doesn't work for them. So this is sort of an interesting, maybe a potential rewiring or whatever. Well, but mm. it, does, it does raise the, the value of fear. Again, evolutionally mm-hmm. speaking, yeah. clearly it's something that, you know, has yep. been good for us to have. Mm-hmm. So one way or the other, you need to have it. That's it. Yeah. Mm. I'm still scared of you sometimes. Fair enough. <laughs> yeah, fair enough. I think it's appropriate. Uh, we've got to wind it up for today and hand over to the team for Eat It. Dr. Lauren, thanks so much for coming in. Pleasure. And Dr. Ray. It was fun. Thank you. 
Chris KP. That was gross, mate. Thanks. <laughs> Liv's been doing our Twitter feed. She's been typing at the rate of knots because I, you know, she took a couple of weeks off and I said, you've got to make up for it <laughs> um, with extra tweets. If you want to follow us on Twitter, please do also uh, do a search on Facebook for Einstein and Gogo and you can follow us there as well. The show is always put up uh, an hour or two afterwards uh, as a link and as a podcast a few days later. I'm Dr. Shane. Thanks so much for listening today. You're on 3 R. See you again next week, folks. Thanks so much for listening. This has been a podcast from 3 R. 102.7 FM in Melbourne. Truly independent community radio. Want to hear more? Check out our website at rrr.org.au.